March 18th. Yesterday I was in a kilt. Today I am not. Um, it's 11 a.m. on the East Coast, and you're listening to Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, and I am your host today, Lisa Salberg. Today I'm really excited about the podcast, and I kind of dreamed about this last summerish, and we finally made it all come to be. And I am being joined today by somebody who really understands HCM at a depth that is a little unusual, not completely unique, but a little unusual. Um, the first time I came to know the name Alex DeFeria, he was 15 years old and his mother called the HCMA and said, my sons, plural, have HCM. And we went through typical intake process. We helped mom identify care. And I first spoke to Alex, I believe, in 2011. And as his HCM experience grew, but then career path took him in a different direction. And I'm going to let him explain that part to you. Alex, welcome to Tales from the Heart. And I'm really excited to have you here today, if I didn't mention that already. Thank you so much. I've been excited to do this. Um, so yeah, I grew up in a small town in Georgia, um, Milledgeville, Georgia, and my brother was diagnosed with HCM when he was 16 and I was 15 um, because he actually had a sudden event where he passed out and uh, fortunately came to, but in retrospect, sounds like he had a, an abnormal heart rhythm. And so at the time, there were no cardiologists uh, where we grew up. Um, and so we got lucky enough that there was a cardiologist about an hour away from us in a town called Macon um, that had trained with uh, Dr. Jeff Tobin, who was a big name in pediatric cardiology and HCM. And so she made the diagnosis. And then sure enough, we flew out to see uh, Dr. Tobin in Texas and got the formal diagnosis. And that's when the journey began. Um, and so you know, my brother and I then started seeing doctors and Emory. I, I eventually uh, went to medical school um, at Vanderbilt in Tennessee. Uh, I had a myectomy at the end of my first year of medical school. Um, and I actually had had an ICD implanted the year before that. Um, and then a month after my myectomy, I recovered and came back and started doing research in HCM in a guy named Jason Becker's lab who now runs HCM clinic or helps run the HCM clinic at Pittsburgh um, and is a mentor of mine. And so I started looking at mice with HCM and mutations in MYBPC3, uh, which is a very common genetic change that causes HCM. Um, so I spent five years at Vandy then started looking places to go do my training for medicine um, and went up to Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, where there's also a lot of big HCM people at. Um, did three years in Boston and then uh, came down to Philadelphia to do my cardiology training and uh, have been lucky enough to work with Anjali Owens um, and Charlene Day as two of my clinical mentors here and have been spending the last year doing what is to my knowledge the only inherited cardiology fellowship in existence. So we created a, a curriculum to train doctors in all types of inherited heart disease, not just hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but dilated cardiomyopathy and arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathies and the whole gambit. Um, but I would say I probably 75% of what I do is HCM. And so I will be joining faculty in three months here at Penn 
and seeing patients independently. That's my, my life in a nutshell. <laughs> okay. So that's an awful lot. Um, yeah. You know, some people think my HCM is part of who I am, not what I do. Um, and you have this very unique, like I do, ability, different points of view to make your heart disease part of what you do and why you do what you do. And I'm a little curious as to, I mean, there's a thousand, there's a thousand topics we're going to be jumping into. So for those of you who are watching or listening, this is not Alex's only showing on Tales from the Heart. We're going to have him back quarterly and we're going to be doing updates. What's going on in science? How are you doing? How are you converging those two worlds? This is the beginning of a long dialogue. So if we don't get to every point today, we'll catch it the next time or the next time or the next time. But um, I think it's pretty clear to say that our paths are parallel and we're moving in the same direction. So we have a lot to do over the next oh, 20 or 30 or 40 years or so. Yeah, for sure. Who knows what technology will be beyond podcasts? I don't know. Oh, yeah. Will you be virtually popping in here? I don't know. Like the Arguably, this is the most exciting time in HCM in the last, I don't know, 50 years. <laughs> so, so it's a good time. It is, it is a good time to be in HCM. We have so much happening. And a lot of the places that you've been are kind of part of why we have so much to look forward to. You know, when you were diagnosed, we probably were at the, the, the starting point of understanding the basics of genetics. The first clinically available genetic tests came out in like 2005 and we were just maybe 2006 and we were just starting to get that concept going. It was $8,000 for three genes. It was ridiculous. Hardly anybody could do it. So yours truly was beating up the companies to bring down the prices wow. <laughs> way back then. Um, and now we have um, industry supported testing. So it's free for most patients. So this is amazing. So Alex. Not where we're going, but where we are. What's it like to be on both sides of this in the in the clinical setting? You have HCM. People are coming in trying to explain symptoms to you. Are you like, no, I get you. Been there. How does it work? Um, you know, I for the most part do disclose uh, that I have HCM when I see patients. It's funny when I was training, I got a lot of mixed feedback uh, for being you know too personal um, with patients. Uh, which is the great part about training is because you're just there to see how other people do it. And then you can decide what you think is right and wrong. And there isn't really a right way to do things, but I kind of felt like it was important. Um, especially when you meet, I, I couldn't tell you how many times I've met people that said, I've never met somebody else with HCM. Um, so I think it's important one, um, just so that people don't feel like they're on some Island, especially when you're young right? Like when you're hanging out in a hospital and everyone around you is 80 um, and you're 20, um, it's tough. So I think that that is one thing I think is important. And then the other thing is um, a lot of people don't realize that they are having symptoms because they've never known what it's like to feel normal. They just assume everybody feels crummy um, and it's just what it is. So I think it's helped me kind of tease out when people are having symptoms that they otherwise wouldn't have realized were HCM. Um, Let's stay so, here for a minute. Let's stay yeah. on this for a minute because 
Ugh. We didn't practice a lot of this. This is just free flowing conversation, people that you get to listen into. So when I'm on the phone with somebody doing what we call a navigation call, which is helping them go through their medical records, understanding what's been done, why it's been done, what the results mean, and what questions they may need to ask their physician, I have a tricky time saying, okay, I don't know quite how to tell you this, but I don't think you really know how you feel. <laughs> and the reason is you only know the heart that you have. You've acclimated to what's normal to you. You don't know what's normal in somebody else's body. And it's really hard to know if that little shortness of breath you're feeling is because of age and deconditioning or because your heart is not acting normally and it's struggling a little. And having that conversation is awkward. And then I say, I completely understand this because I've been on both sides. I've lived a life with HCM. I've had a transplant and I've lived a life without HCM now. So things that I thought were normal certainly were not normal. And the only way I could know that was with the perspective of a new heart, which I do not think is necessarily what everybody's going to do because only 5% of <laughs> yeah. us go to transplant. Yeah. So I'm saying it from that point of view. And when you're saying it to somebody, what are you saying? Like, how do you navigate that? Yeah. I mean, I, I talked to them a lot about how I felt leading up to my surgery because I was asymptomatic when I was diagnosed and then became clearly symptomatic during my late teens, but was for the most part in denial um, and didn't want to get an ICD and didn't want to do all this stuff. You know, I was a, you know, didn't have a frontal lobe yet. I was like a 20 year old boy. Um, and so I talked to them about that time. And I also talked to them, you know, about, especially if it's an obstructive form of HCM, um, that they're clear treatments for that can sound really scary, um, that there is hope, you know, that there are ways to make you feel better. Because um, I do think that a lot of times people need to be empowered to, to say, I don't feel great. Uh, there is a fear of once you've been diagnosed, you don't want to say anything because they might do something to you. Uh, they, uh, they might make you get on the treadmill. Everyone hates the treadmill test. Everyone hates, you know, like I used to dread getting on the treadmill, um, but, you know, I, I had a really life-changing response uh, to myectomy um, and that, you know, a lot of people do, some people don't. So I don't, I never overpromise. Um, but I will say that, you know, a lot of instances, and that's what I've dedicated a lot of my training to is to figuring out who is going to respond the best, how to improve treatments surgical approaches, things like that. I've spent time in the OR with, um, at Cleveland Clinic and here. And so finding the best ways to do that to give people the best results. But, you know, I think for me, I talk a lot about how I used to feel and then how I feel today. Because no one looks at me. The other thing is no one looks at you and says, oh, you look like you have HCF. <laughs> so people exactly. are shocked that I tell them uh, that I have it for the most part. Which is kind of awesome. And, you know, much like when you're in clinic and somebody says, I've never talked to somebody with HCM before, we get that a lot coming into the office. And now I have one of my intake coordinators who actually does have HCM, another one who doesn't. Um, but these are the first interactions they're having with individuals who also share their diagnosis and the development of our discussion groups where they can get into rooms and actually talk to people on Zoom. Um, so we're opening those doors to say, we're everybody. We're no different than your neighbor. 
we're of every race, ethnicity, gender, sexual identity. We're, we're everybody. Everybody is at risk for HCM. So we look like everybody. Um, okay. And that's good and bad because we hide in plain sight. Yeah. We definitely do. Yeah. So you're on both sides and you're telling people, oh, no, I get it. I'm you. But what does that do for you? How do you feel after you've talked to somebody who's struggling with HCM and how do you process that? I mean, I love what I do. I tried to, I tried to find other things to do because people are like, oh, it's too close. It's too close. I was like, oh, maybe I'll be, well, I always want to be a doctor. I was like, maybe I'll be a gynecologist or maybe I'll be, and it was always gravitating towards the people with heart issues that in those specialties. So, you know, I, I'm very happy with what I do. I get a lot of fulfillment seeing, I mean, I'm in clinic right now, four days a week three of those are seeing mostly HCM. So I'm very happy with what I do. I do lose sleep over, you know, the patient that comes from hours and hours away that has advanced heart failure symptoms and, you know, terrible obstruction and I'm concerned about and, you know, doesn't want to, you know, doesn't, doesn't understand the gravity of, of what it is and, and that we can treat it like those folks are in the back of my mind all the time. So I talk about HCM a little bit too much, probably at home, my wife would say that. Um, but she could diagnose HCM probably too. She's an artist now. So, um, you know, uh, it is, I, it's a very welcome stress um, to take care of folks with HCM. So I, I, I love it. So the phrase purpose-driven life seems to fit here you're, you're in your, you're in your purpose. And I can speak to my own experience. I don't know how you process this. I'm a little bit older than you, and maybe I'm a little bit different in my processing, but the work I do helps me cope with my own health issues because I have shared experiences with others, which is important to validate your own psychological management of all of this. Um, but it also is incredibly fulfilling that I learned something down the path and I'm going to hand it to somebody else and I'm going to help them live their best life. And that's pretty amazing work to be able to do. And I, I, I kind of see you parallel in there. Yeah. And in the work you've done too, uh, not to undersell it. I mean, HCM centers across the country, like the designation of HCM a center of excellence is an, an important one um, and makes a difference. Uh, so, you know, what you've done is, is not just good for you, but it's been life changing. I mean, I knew where to go to get my treatment because of a conversation my mom had with you almost 20 years ago. It makes me feel really old. So let's not put that on <laughs> yeah, A little okay. while ago. Just a little while ago, because I'm 28 yeah. and I've only been doing it for 26 years. I was that's, a child prodigy. Right. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, Every once in a while, I do take a moment and take a breath and look back and go, wow, we did a lot in 26 years. We've changed the face of HCM management. We've shown patients that they're not alone. We've developed a network of patients and physicians and researchers as industry. We've, we've built an amazing foundation. And I feel it took me 26 years to build the foundation. Now I get to build the house. And yeah. stay tuned. There might be some interesting news coming soon on those fronts, but I can't say anything yet. So we've got some big plans coming, but what do you have planned? What do you want to 
see in 26 years your mark on HCM? I um so clinically, like specifically for the disease, uh, I did a lot of research on the basic science end earlier on, and then I further I got the more I realized I love seeing patients. Um, I still talk to Jason Becker every like couple weeks and keep up with what's going on in the lab. But my my focus has really been more clinical. So I'm mostly a clinical cardiologist, but I am pretty heavily and will probably continue to be pretty heavily involved in some of the um, myosin inhibitor, the newer therapies, the novel therapies that are coming down the pipeline that have so far been very impressive and are very welcome in a disease that didn't have a whole lot else but borrowed meds for a long time. So I'm interested in novel therapies. um, And I've spent a lot of time looking at other approaches like surgical approaches, the like catheter-based approaches to treating this disease. So that, those are like two clinical things I'm very interested in. And then I'm also like fascinated about genotype negative or HCM that doesn't have a genetic cause. Um, so trying to figure, and not saying it doesn't have a genetic cause, it might just be we're not, smart enough to, we're not smart enough to know why you have HCM yet. Um, so there's a lot of things I'm interested in. I could go all day. I have a book I write ideas in. Um, So I have a lot of clinical things outside of like purely research and like HCM specific things. I'm I'm interested in access to care. Um, My family's Puerto Rican and Cuban. I would say I've seen a handful of Latino patients in my clinic now. So I'm trying. And if you look at all the studies, it's like 90 to 95 percent Caucasian. Um, And so I'm trying to increase access to our clinics, um, both here in the Philadelphia area and then starting to have collaborations with sites outside of Philadelphia and outside of the country. We are putting together our first health equity committee to address this particular issue. So maybe we'll get you a little involved in what we're doing there. Um, It's not only health equity for the patient. My internet just got unstable here for a second. So I'm just going to give a little pause here. Should be good now. Um, We're going to be... taking a deeper dive into how do we get the Latino population, how do we get Black people, Asians, non-Caucasian individuals into HCM care? How do we get them recognized? There are a few populations I'm very worried about because there is such a low um, percentage of individuals affected currently in HCM Center of Excellence care, um, particularly Black males um, um, under the age of 40 and Black women over the age of 40. So there, there's, there's some numbers that are like, there are zeros, like there's nobody there and why aren't they there? Um, And we've seen too many, too many people ignored for their HCM symptoms. Young Latino man just passed away recently from undiagnosed HCM after being, you know, in care and identified, but not appreciated for being in heart failure. So we need to do a lot more work to get that awareness where it needs to be. And I'm happy to say we did receive a a nice little grant recently to do some healthcare or health access communications in the space of health equity. And I'm working on getting that started soon. So we'll have some issues there. Um, But health equity, critically important. What do you think a young patient needs to hear or needs to see when they're diagnosed with HCM that maybe you could make a difference in because you were that young patient? Um, 
after I tell them my diagnosis, I, I stress pretty immediately that this is treatable and that we can do things to help them have a good quality of life and that we can make them feel better and that they're not alone. Those are like the first things because like you can feel it when they come in the room because I was that patient and the mom is super nervous because she doesn't know what's going on with her kids and the kids are super nervous because they don't know why they're in a hospital. Um, and so that's what I tell them right off the bat before we get into details and all this stuff, because I also found that there's a lot of jargon that you can use that people don't understand. And if you ask them to repeat you what you said at the end of a visit, they're like, uh, obstruction. <laughs> and so, you know, they, uh, so I try and, and start off with that. Like this is a treatable disease, you know, and even if in only a small percentage have complications from it, and even if you do have complications, there are things we can do about it. So I try and get that out there first to, you know, calm the room a little bit because then we can have an honest discussion right about how you're feeling um, especially with young kids trying to figure out like what they can do with their lives like how can they be when I was diagnosed it was you know yeah. you get to ride a golf cart and you can bowl but you can't do anything else and you can, <laughs> it's like and so things have changed since then um, so you know it opens up a conversation that you know figure out what they want what do they think is a good quality of life um, and how we can help them get there. So let's talk a little bit about that moment of communication. And I was 12, you were 15 when you heard the words for the first time, our words were a little different. I was idiopathic, hypotrophic, subaortic stenosis, yeah. lots of words. You were hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with obstruct or not obstructed at that point. Um, do you remember what it felt like when you heard the words for you? I, I was more disappointed about being told I couldn't play sports. Like that was the big thing. They talked about sudden death and all this stuff, but it was the, what can I not do? And so I specifically remember the day I turned in my jersey. I was a soccer player on an all-star team and I was very competitive. Um, so that's what I remember. That was terrible. Um, but yeah, I tuned out a lot of the other stuff. I think that's like a teenage mindset. Did you feel protected by your choices or did you feel robbed? Oh, I definitely felt like it was unfair. I definitely felt like this was totally unfair. I mean, I went to military school, right? So there was military things going on all the time. There was physical training, blah, blah, blah. I used to have to, you know, people didn't understand the diagnosis. I was in a small town. There weren't a lot of very medical people. There were military people. And they were like, oh, well, you're just going to walk laps around the field while your friends play kickball and blah, 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 because you can't do anything. Um, and so, you know, and that happens to a lot of patients. You know, that happens to a lot where they're very restricted, probably, you know, too restricted. Um, which has very negative consequences um, over time. And so, yeah, I felt it was very unfair. Did you, how did you process that? Let me just ask it that way. How did you process the unfairness? Because you were um, an adolescent male. I was an adolescent female, slightly different perspectives. You were very athletic. My athletic, yeah, my stuff was pulled away right away as well. I know what it did to me. What did it do to you? I think 
I maybe not immediately, but eventually what I just did was, you know what, I'm going to prove all these people wrong. You know, and I'm just going to start studying this disease and I'm going to figure this out. Um, so I remember I used to sit in the library at the University of Georgia and in between studying, I would go read all the books about HCM and they were all written by Barry Merritt, all written by Barry <laughs> all written by Barry Merritt. Like, okay, well, I'm just going to email this guy because this guy seems like he knows what he's doing. And he emailed me back <laughs> and then I met him and I saw him. And, you know, and so that, I think I just shifted. I mean, there, there's a couple of ways I think that people can cope with things. And I felt like this is the most, uh, you know, productive way um, to channel my anger and resentment towards this is to just figure it out. I'm so glad you said those words because if anybody thinks that like I could do the kind of work that I do without a tad of anger and resentment for HCM at the core of it. I mean, this thing changed the trajectory of my life. And for a long time, not to the positive until we decided to do something proactive and turn it to a positive. But yeah, there's anger and resentment. And I think it's healthy to say those words out loud and say, this sucks. Nobody yeah. really wants to be here, but if you're here, you might as well learn the landscape and learn how to navigate it well. Yeah. And I try and get that out to, you know, the, the patients I'm seeing all the time, because you can tell, like when you come in every visit, every six months and they're just like, oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. And not really okay. And so we try and, and, and have a conversation and we're fortunate enough that, you know, we block out a lot of time. I'm always running late. <laughs> so so I apologize for anybody that comes to see me if I'm late. Um, but it's because I think that's like 50% of the treatment you can give somebody is just like letting them get it out. Like, yeah, it's not fair. I agree. What are we going to do about it? So kind of like staying in the personal thought process here, because you and I could probably geek out for hours on end about the treatment option and what would you do for this and what would you do for that? And we may do that in a future episode, um, but I want to kind of stay a little bit on focus for our topics of the month because I'm sure. trying to stay consistent. Um, and this is an interesting observation. Now we've been talking for about 28 minutes and we mentioned that you have an ICD. Mm-hmm. It's the topic of the month is arrhythmias and living life with a device. Mm-hmm. And you kind of glossed over it. Like I used to deal with my ICDs. Like, yeah, I got an ICD. Next topic. But what's life with an ICD like while you're working in a clinic with cardiac patients who may also be at risk and need devices? So like you just kind of rolled it off your back. Like, yeah, I have a device. Um. I guess I thought it was a really big deal, like at first, um, and it is a big deal. It is a big deal. I don't want anybody to think it's not a big deal. Um, you, the older I get, the more big deals I experience, and then they become less of big deals as I get to the next one. Um, and so, uh, you know, an ICD is a very important uh, decision, both for quality of life um, and. I consider it for those that qualify for one as an insurance policy. You know, my brother wouldn't mind me sharing this. His ICD has saved his life. Um, Mine, fortunately, at least knock on wood, has never gone off, Um, but it's there. And if I ever needed it, it would go off. Um, I don't think about it 
on a daily basis. I've had mine implanted for, see, I got it, 2000, I have 12 years. And Same it's just device. sitting there looking. Mm -hmm. I'm up for a change. So pretty soon I'll be uh, getting a new one. But, um, you know, mine's just sitting there watching me. And I know that that's not the case for everybody. And so I don't want to, uh, in any ways, make it seem like it's not a big deal because it is a big deal. Um, for me, I looked at it as if I can treat this disease by doing something that will make me feel better, and then if I can safeguard myself from one of the major complications, which is sudden death, then I've pretty much beaten it. What else is it going to do to me then? Uh, so, and that was my thought process. And so getting the ICD was made sense. Um, and so I haven't really thought much about it since. And, you know, I'll have patients when they come in and like, uh, they're really nervous about an ICD. I'm like, here you go. You feel that? Like it, you can barely feel it. Yeah. You know, it's a little scar. It's not beautiful, but, um, you know, you get used to it. I've got all kinds of scars now. So, so I was going to say, I, I would. Scars yeah. are just, you know, conversation starters. Don't, yeah. don't overthink them. Um, yeah. Okay. So you've been living with a device for over a decade. Um, you're managing the risk, but it doesn't really impact the daily life. It's just there. Yeah, for me, it doesn't. Okay. Um, that was very much how I eventually viewed my device when it was new. It hurt. I got, had to get used to, you know, positioning your body. It, it was, mine was put in in 1997. You were like mm -hmm. 10. That's, I was. <laughs> yeah. 10 you were older, but it was very big. It was about the size of, of an iPhone at that point. Mm -hmm. And it was sub pack and it was huge. Yeah. And then they got smaller and then they went um, in the typical location. So um, yeah, it it's a very nuanced deal. decision. You know, subcutaneous ICDs that don't go inside the body but sit outside, those came out after I got mine. So that was not an option for me. Um, so there's different options now. The devices have better detection of abnormal rhythms. They have longer battery life. They're smaller. Um, so there's a lot of options um, when it comes to if you're found to need an ICD, which, again, is not the vast majority of patients, but a, a decent amount will would benefit from one. And so, you know, there, it's a discussion uh, when it comes time to here's what your risk. And I, I am not here to tell anybody what to do. I, I always tell folks, these are the risks. You know, this is what I did when I was presented with these risks. And, it, and many times I'll get, what would you do? And I was like, I'll, and I'm very honest with what I would do if I was in that situation. And if it's get an ICD, I'll tell you, I would get an ICD. And if it's a gray zone, I'll, I'll admit that because, uh, you know, there, there can be a very paternalistic approach to it. And I think that that can sometimes get in the way of, of really figuring out everybody's goals here. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of options. We've come a long way. Electrophysiologists have done great things with finding ways to program ICDs so that you can do whatever you want. Like if you want to get out and exercise, if you feel well enough to exercise and do it safely, um, then we can set your ICD so that it doesn't pick up a normal rhythm and think it's abnormal. And we can do things like that, that can give people liberation with a device. Okay. I'm going to lean into that word because you were going down a concept and I like the word liberation. So 
You mentioned that in your early days of trying to understand HCM, you did much of what I did, which was find some guy named Barry and say, hey, dude, we need to talk. So, and Barry Marin is very open to those discussions and conversations. Um, and it came from a time, um, comes from a time when HCM was still evolving in our understanding and knowledge. He did a lot to help define the disease itself. He did a lot to help bring ICD therapy to HCM when Morosky created it kind of for us, but then gave it to other people, um, which is always an interesting story. But then we get these ICDs. And then we have this secondary line, and that is sudden death in the young and HCM and sudden death in athletes. So for many years, we were all told to stop and sit down. And we know that that has its consequences. And we know that some sports may be higher risk than others, but we have evolved over time and we are moving into a different time of decision-making there. Yep. So let's take that and just kind of put a pin in that for one second. And then let me bring in shared decision-making and the guidelines. So we're learning more about risks and how to mitigate risks and how to identify people at risk. And we're also doing more to encourage shared decision-making in the deepest sense of the word, not just the doctor saying, here are some options for you, but the patient having an obligation to also learn for themselves what the risks and benefits are and then helping make the choice as to right or left, yes or no, device or no device, surgery or no surgery, athletic competition to this level, to that level, to no level, where are we going, Alex? <laughs> I will preface this conversation by saying it is a very contentious conversation, even within cardiology still. Exactly. It's very different than it was when I was a kid versus today. A lot of that is because of one of my mentors, Charlene Day, who's done a lot of research into this and done studies. You know, there's a reset HCM study where we got patients with symptoms and we got them to exercise to see like does exercise truly increase your risk? I, a lot of this has changed because of research that um, Charlene Day has done, um, who was at Michigan when she did this research, and now she's with us at Penn. And lo looking at that question, like, are we doing a disservice by telling patients with HCM, don't do anything, just sit there? Which, mm -hmm. to be honest, it wasn't that dramatic, but it felt like it. It felt like it, you know, it felt like you can't do anything like you're uh, just a glass house. Um, and so she did a study where we exercised a lot of patients with HCM. It wasn't a huge population, but it was a group of patients and it was a, a controversial study at the time. What do you mean you're going to exercise people with HCM um, to look to see, are they having more events? You know, do they feel better? Does their exercise capacity improve? And at least, at least in her study, you know, it seemed like people felt better. People did better. And there weren't a bunch of terrible things that happened to people when they did it. And so that, that kind of change started to change the way that we think about it. And there are other studies like the ICD sports registry. There's multiple studies looking at, can we truly correlate exercising with sudden death? And, you know, we're finding out more data. If anybody tells you, if you do this, this is going to happen to you, they're lying to you because no one knows for sure with HCM. We have prediction risk models that try to predict your risk. But at the end of the day, you know, we can look at your heart, we can talk about all these risk factors. And then we need to talk about what you think is a, a, an acceptable quality of life.
if you say, you know, I'm a runner and if I can't run, then I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. It's pretty hard to tell that person, okay, well, sorry, you're never going to run again. There are ways that we can work around it. We can do tailored exercise prescriptions. We can do monitored exercise to see how you do. And it's a very nuanced discussion. So I'm not going to try and act like there's a, a one size fits all answer I can give you. Um, but that's a discussion why discussion that can happen now. Totally. It's a totally shared discussion where we talk about risk benefits. We talk about, well, if you have an ICD, there is a possibility that if it, it might go off, if something happens while you're exercising, is that an acceptable risk to you? You know, and, think, and that, that conversation, and it's funny, I've had a lot of discussions with our pediatric colleagues about this. It's a complicated discussion when it's a child, right? Like, say, there's, there's two conversations here. There is an adult with an adult brain processing information in coordination with their healthcare provider and or another governing body, a school, yeah. an athletic team, a professional sports team. That's one level of conversation. And then there's kids. Yeah. And yeah. there are parents and there are doctors and there are adolescent mm -hmm. minds. Yeah. And there are kids who say things dramatically like, I'd rather die on the soccer field than never play again. Yeah. Well? Yeah. And those are tough discussions. And, you know, look, there are, and there are going to be different doctors that are going to tell you different things. It gets confusing. I'm saying this from the patient side now. I'm taking my doctor hat off and telling you the truth um, that it gets confusing. And patients will go throughout their life and like, what? I just heard, I heard something totally different when I was a pediatric patient. And now I'm 19 and all of a sudden the rules it's totally change. different. And, you know, some of that is, first of all, it's, I believe, I still believe, because I had crazy things told to me throughout my life, that it all comes from a good place. People are trying to, people are trying to help you. They're trying to keep you safe. I don't think anybody's out there, I don't think, to, to um, you know, to make your life worse. But I think some of it is uncertainty. A lot of those studies I talked about were in adults, not in kids. And so, you know, there's a lot we need to do still. There are. And the sad reality is, and you know, we each come from our own perspectives. If you're in a high volume care model and you're seeing patients who are well cared for because they're going to you, your incident rate is probably going to be really, really low because you can risk stratify. You can have those conversations. They're engaged in good health care. But sometimes, you know, HCM is never a no risk disease. What are the triggers for arrhythmia? We don't know them all. We can't no. say don't do this activity because it will definitely trigger an arrhythmia, but we can say when you do things that increase your heart rate, alter your hemodynamics, alter your sodium, potassium, magnesium, sodium levels, and change everything, that that might create an environment where an arrhythmia is more common and yeah. try to figure out when that situation is going to happen to you. We just lost a young man a couple of weeks ago. I'm not going to mention names here, but he was a known diagnosis participating in a recreational activity and has a cardiac arrest and we lose him. And was there not proper risk stratification? Could we have learned something else about him and protected him with the device ahead of time? Unfortunately, we don't really know the answer. So those cases scare doctors and parents to making very cautious decisions with children 
And we are living in a world that continues to evolve thanks to research, thanks to deeper understanding. And we're all trying to get to a place where we know exactly what to do. Most common question I get asked, how much exercise can I do? I don't know. You got to talk to your doctor. You got to know your anatomy. You got to know your meds. You got to know all this stuff. And you have to make some decisions on risk. Yeah. You know, for us, you know, most of our patients get either, depending on, you know, their clinical situation, but a lot of them get treadmill exercise tests very regularly. And that does help us, you know, figure out, you know, how does your body respond to exercise? What does your heart look like with exercise? You know, is your body able to keep up with the things you want to do or is it not? Um, That helps us a lot. And so, again, like you were saying, the benefits of being in a high resourced, you know, regular follow-up center that's a, that can go along the journey with you makes those kinds of questions easier to at least attempt to tackle than if it's like a one and done, I came to see you once. And that's why we need to increase the volume of our clinics because not everybody is lucky enough to live somewhere where they can drive down the street and see someone that sees this disease every day. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. (laughs) That's part of the goal, right? Yeah. So all interesting comments. Um, I, I look forward to the evolving conversation there and we will probably be diving into different topics over the next couple of months or years or whatever, however long I can hook you into doing these podcasts. Um, but I want to, I want to take it to the personal a little bit because you're the 15 year old kid who was diagnosed. We know that you were a smart 15 year old because you ended up in med school and you're now what 34 and you're Dr. Alex, you're not just Alex anymore. Um, but what else is in your life? Is there, what's going on personally? Some changes going on, I suspect. Yeah. Yeah. So we just had a baby. Um, my wife, Ashley and I, we live in this tiny little house in Philadelphia. <laughs> um, we just had a little girl named Flora, um, oh. a month, uh, six weeks ago as of today. Congratulations. And so she is, thank you. Thank you. She is doing great. I did little echoes on her heart <laughs> and it looks okay. Uh, so, you know, she's, uh, she's wonderful and that changes the perspective too. You know, like I'm about to be a parent and now I'm starting to see, you know, she was jaundiced when she was born and even just watching her under, be under the UV lamp made me like, oh gosh, I've tried to think of my poor mom, myectomy is for two boys, ICD is for two boys. (laughs) It's like, I'm starting to see things from a different, uh, different vantage point. It's a whole different set of rules when it's yourself and then it's your child. I, I gave a talk recently um, where I think my line was, if you think it's bad being diagnosed with a chronic incurable disease, imagine worrying that your child will be or is dealing with that. And you always worry, no matter whether it's HCM or anything else, you know, your baby's jaundice, um, you worry. and. Yeah it's a different kind of worry because you didn't know that your heart could live outside of your body until you had a child. I have multiple mothers and grandmothers who have rip roaring obstruction, really hard time walking a block and they come in the clinic and all they talk about is not how they feel, but their concern for their children and their grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And that guilt, you know, the guilt, like, Oh my gosh, could I have passed this on? 
Um, so I try and remove the guilt because, you know, they wouldn't exist if you wouldn't have had them. So, uh, you know, life with HCM is, is a good life. It's just, you know, you have to manage it, but yeah, it's, it's uh, being a parent is harder. <laughs> I thought it was going to be. Oh, wait till the, wait, wait till Flora is a teenager. We'll have a whole other conversation. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, by that point, I'm probably going to have a, my daughter is just a little bit younger than you. So maybe I'll have grandkids by that point. Who knows? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I got my kind of grandson. He's my great nephew. Close enough. So what else do you want to dive into over the next couple of conversations? What do you think the HCM community might want or need to hear from you? And if anybody has any questions who's watching live, they're more than welcome to post them now. But what are you hoping to get out of Tales from the Heart? And what message do you want to get out? Um, I think you know, some important things, and I guess we could talk about it here, but they're things that I want to start initiatives at Penn. I think there probably should be things like ICD support groups for folks that are dealing with these devices and whether they're complications or whether the devices go off appropriately or inappropriately. Um, you know, I think talking about those kinds of things and the nuances of having devices are important. Um, I think that the new therapies that are coming out like this year and uh, things that are under investigation and trials, I think are important to talk about um, because if I were presenting as a 15 year old today, my care would probably look different than it did 20 years ago. Um, and so I think that, and I know you've had uh, people come on and talk about it. Um, and so I just think it's important to continue to reiterate that things are changing and that, you know, and hopefully we can get it to the point where we can get access for people to the new therapies. That's the next big hurdle. Um, that's a huge I hurdle. I think that's important too. Um, I also think there's another group of patients that often gets overlooked, which are non-obstructive patients. Mm -hmm. And those folks are understandably super confused because even if you read about HCM online, most of it just talks about obstructive HCM. It's very hard to find. And I'm trying to get a study off the ground to look at non-obstructive HCM because we really don't understand as much as we should about people without obstruction. Um, yeah. And, you know, people without obstruction have symptoms and have issues and, you know, we got to talk about it. And so I could see that those folks being particularly frustrated. Um, so maybe... Um, those would be good conversations too to have. So the non-obstructed population, you know, once you've had a myectomy, you're not obstructed, right? But you still could have some diastolic <laughs> issues. You still yeah. have HCM and we create a lot of non-obstructeds and many of them go on for many, many years and decades and they're mildly symptomatic yeah. and, and that's fine. But then there's the people like me who I told everybody I was fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Until I ended up in the hospital not saying, fine. I'm not fine today. Not fine. And I left yeah. the hospital being on a transplant list. Yeah. And we need to do a better job of identifying those individuals in time so that we are getting to them while the rest of their organs are still good and we yeah. haven't developed additional complications. And we need to identify them so that we can treat them better earlier. So I agree hundred percent. And, and I also think, unfortunately, there is a misconception for some 
folks that don't see a lot of HCM that non-obstructive HCM is just, they're going to do fine. Better. There's no problem. Yeah. It's better. And I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying we probably need to think a little bit more. And sometimes people's symptoms may get dismissed because, oh, well, you don't have obstruction. Why do you feel that? You don't, it's not your HCM. And that's not always the case. And, you know, there's studies coming out in this group too, that I think, you know, people need to know that there are options that we can do. It's a very, very frustrating uh, group within our family of folks with HCM that um, I'm interested in trying to help. Uh, I'm very happy about that. Uh, in terms of future therapies, um, I think a, a topic for maybe next podcast will be a little bit future thinking and why clinical trials are important and to maybe spend some time to demystify a clinical trial. Um, I've been in multiple. I'm assuming you've probably been in one or two yourself over the years. Um, and that experience of being, being brave enough to participate in a clinical trial and being smart enough to communicate clearly any issues that you're having so that they're documented for yourself and others, but the importance of everybody in the community stepping up when they can to participate in a clinical trial. Um, you mentioned LiveHCM. HCMA was the like top recruiter into that study. We're really happy with that work. Um, and we also helped with the early uh, data that was able to be used for the RESET project. We did a survey with Stanford and University of Michigan, Charlene and, and you and Ashley, um, looking at questions like, how many of you have participated at a varsity level or above and now are diagnosed with HCM? And 10% of the population was there. So if they were able to do that, what did that mean about their risk? So like just asking questions, and oh, yeah, collectively yeah. sharing that information, we're on a path. You know, the, the, you mentioned early in the podcast, the negative genetic test or the no mutation found is my preferred terminology. Who, what, why are you like you are? What genes have we missed? What are we not looking at? We have yeah. so much more to do, but we've yeah. come so far. Oh yeah, no, I think, part of your initiative and my goal too, of expanding access to care, especially in parts of the world that don't get things like genetic tests. I mean, sure, you're not gonna know a mutation if you don't look for it. If there's a whole population of people in a different country that never gets genetic testing, you know, then common variants or changes in DNA that could cause disease in a part of the world may never be seen here. So of course, if you get our panel, negative or mutation not found. So I think there's there's just so much work to be done. My my hope, you know, with today's talk and if people are listening is just to get go away with it. You know, this is a treatable disease. You can have a great life. Um, and you know, there are lots of really good caring people out there that want to take care of you. Um, and so my hope is that like I remember getting on your blogs back in the day when it was a really old school like message board. Message board. Yeah. <laughs> and looking up like people asking all these questions is like you have to like like go through like 50 messages to figure out well, you know how long you're in the hospital after my activity kind of thing um, and how far we've made it now. And so I hope that you know people get access to you know forums like this and then can get connected with people across the country. Even though we've got a lot of work to do, we you know you you've been able to position people in a lot of different places so that you know, people won't have to fly to Texas like I did, um, you know, because not everyone can do that. 
No, they can't. I was and fortunate. That's, that's why the center of excellence programming is so important. And I know, you know, people will criticize sometimes, well, there's not, there's not enough and they're not close enough. Well, when I started, there were five and now there's yeah. 43 and we are growing. And yeah. hopefully by the end of summer, we have the potential of four new programs to join our, our network potentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. People are not, realizing the importance. People yeah, they, realize they it wasn't hard for me in. to find a job. No, no, I could get you a job like, don't tell you Penn, but I could get you a job anywhere tomorrow. Um, but you're staying where you are, Anjali. I'm not poaching your staff. Don't worry about it, Charlene. My hands are off. Um, but there are some great opportunities, but we need to train up young minds like yours. And I call you my fourth generation. You know, Brunwald kind of started the whole thing. So he's kind of in a class by himself. But then we had the Marins, the Levers, the Sherrods, the McKennas, that group came in. Then we have the next group, which kind of crosses over, Sidemen kind of crosses into there. And then we get into Carolyn Ho and Charlene Day and you, you and Ashley, and we get that next generation. And now we have the Dan Massaras of NYU and you're down at UPenn and we have other generations of people coming up. And it's a little sad because I'm sunsetting some of my first generation people that I was able to work with and they're moving off to retirement um, and we appreciate everything they've contributed, but it doesn't stop with them. We take what they taught us and we say, yep, and, and then the next generation comes in and says, yep, and, or Oop, didn't get that one right, but now we're here. We continue to evolve our knowledge and yep. our reach. And that's pretty freaking awesome. Oh, yeah. I, I am very aware of the fact that I know all the things I know today because of all those people that you mentioned. I've been fortunate enough to meet every single one of them through my training. <laughs> so yeah, it's pretty awesome. You are a unique bird and you're a smart one because you went to the mountain and you've, you, you're, you're going to make a difference. I, I don't know what Dr. Alex's uh, CV is going to look like in another 20 years and what publications we will have and what research will have been done and how our knowledge of HCM has evolved. But I feel pretty good knowing that somebody who has been there, done that, lived it, is also doing the research. We have a few others out there who have family histories or who have HCM themselves, but the numbers are small, but they're there. And I think it's awesome when the patient becomes the doctor and becomes the teacher of the other doctors. So I think we're going to do some pretty amazing things together, Alex. And yeah, thank you I'm excited. so much. Come see us at Penn. Okay, so um, I'm going to wrap up tonight's uh, podcast. This is not the last time we'll be talking to Alex, as I mentioned. And I want to bring you to a couple of um, HCMA announcements. March 22nd, we will be holding our advocacy training session. I'm very excited to announce that um, our HCM Act, Healthy Cardiac Monitoring Act, we're starting to get organized and move it forward with some, um, we're going to be opening up call block nights where you can come join us on Zoom and do call blocks to our state level legislators to help them understand what HCM Act is all about and we're gonna coordinate all of that. I know some people might be a little frustrated that we're a little slow in the upstart on this project, 
but um, we were supposed to launch this in the fall. And unfortunately, our committee chair, member of the tribe, had emergency surgery. So we were a little delayed in getting this launched because of, of um, our ability to scale up to it. So I'm really happy to tell you that it's launching and we are looking forward to a very active uh, 12 to 14 month cycle where we're hoping to get this legislation dropped into a number of states. Basically what we're looking at here is asking cardiac questions in the well child examination to ensure that patients and families have an opportunity to discuss the potentials for additional cardiac screening with their provider. So very simple, nonpartisan, kumbaya folks, we can all do this together. Kids' hearts matter, families' hearts matter. That's what we're working on. So you can join us on March 22nd to learn more about advocacy in general and the specifics of this particular initiative. So thank you for hopefully signing up for that. And then we'll be opening up call blocks shortly thereafter and getting everybody engaged. So you, you've got some support when you're making those calls and we can keep it nice and organized. Um, we would then be uh, working with state leads and defining state leads and getting you guys involved in face-to-face -face meetings and Zoom meetings with the legislators. So step one, join the 22nd. Step two, join a call block. Um, I wanna take an opportunity to thank our sponsors for Tales from the Heart, Cytokinetics, uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Boston Scientific, and Invitae. Um, and I wanna let you all know that we have a new sponsorship partner moving forward in Tanaya, who's working on genetic pace, uh, the uh, genetic basis is for treatment of uh, HCM moving forward. Uh, early days, don't get all excited. We don't have a gene therapy yet, but we have some exciting stuff coming. So thank you all for participating in today's Tales from the Heart, and I'm going to end the broadcast. Have you enjoyed this episode of Tales from the Heart? We hope so. Please visit us at 4hcm.org, become a member, become a donor, become a volunteer. Great news, everybody. HCM Academy is now available online. What is it? It includes online sessions, learning about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, patient stories about HCM and their management, and an opportunity to join online live with an HCM specialist to go over the slides, ask questions, and dig deeper into your understanding and knowledge of HCM. All CME courses are free, and you can find them at 4hcm.org or at the HCM Academy. The Big Hearted Warrior Tour continues. For the latest dates, please check 4hcm.org. And thanks to our sponsors, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Cytokinetics, Invitae, and Boston Scientific. Did you know discussion groups are available at 4hcm.org? Monday through Friday, almost every day you can find a discussion group. Whether you're interested in learning more about ICDs, pre-myectomy, screening your family, there's a discussion group for you. Even if you just want to learn how to balance your mental health, we have that too. So please join us for one of our live discussion groups moderated by a peer volunteer and you can sign up in advance at 4hcm.org. Just check the calendar for events. Please contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association at 4hcm.org or by calling our office at 973-983-7429. You can contact the HCMA by email at support at 4hcm.org. Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the HCMA, is made possible through sponsorship from Boston Scientific, Cytokinetics, Tanaya, Invitae, and Boston Scientific.